Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Tez Devez is an occupational therapist, somatic sexologist, and she is fighting stage three breast cancer. She has personally experienced the severe impacts that treatments can have on intimacy and how often this topic gets ignored. Tess's goal is to help as many people as she can. And we're going to do a deep dive today, not only on her cancer journey, but what does it mean to be a somatic sexologist? Tess, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. Hi. <laughs> well, first of all, <laughs> tell people where you are. I am in the very cloudy, rainy Melbourne, Australia right now. One of the places in Australia I have not visited yet, so it's definitely on my bucket list. So um, if we ever get out of lockdown, I'll be there one day. <laughs> it's a, I, I'm a little biased just because I live here, but it's a very artistic, musical, fantastic, fun city. So we would love to have you. <laughs> That's what I've heard about it. Are you from Melbourne? No, I moved here. I'm actually from uh, Adelaide, South Australia, but that's a I've bit quiet, there. boiling hot and boring. So I moved <laughs> over here. <laughs> Currently, you are a patient, correct? Yes. It's stage three breast cancer. So take us back to the beginning of that journey. And then we're going to kind of talk about also, you know, what you're doing as a provider, which I find so intriguing. So back to the beginning, which seems so long ago. So I think I'm three and a half years into my treatment now. So I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer at the age of 36. And I accidentally found my lump, which I think is a very common experience. I was just touching my body, putting some clothes on. And then I was like, oh God, that's not supposed to be there. I was initially possibly terminal. And then with a lot of tests and surgeries, uh, I became stage three with the potential to live and yay, I'm still here. And I've had it all treatment wise. I've had seven surgeries, six months of chemo, two types of chemo. I had the bread devil and the taxol. I've had five weeks of daily radiotherapy. And I am two and a half years into the five years I'm trying so hard to get through of endocrine treatments, uh, the hormone therapies. I was actually working, already working in sexuality long before my diagnosis. So it's kind of why it was so painfully noticeable to me how not only was I so acutely aware of how my sexuality was impacted so much from every treatment, but also how that there was no one to turn to. So I kind of had to become my own therapist, which is, well, we'll I'm sure we'll deep dive into later why I do what I do. <laughs> yeah. So seven surgeries. Yeah. That's so some of them are not major, but yeah, it was every um, general anesthetic is really taking its toll on my body now, just because I've had so many, so many times. And I think it's just that thing of, um, Every now and then I just get tired of being resilient. <laughs> I just be, I'm just like, okay, uh, I just need to stop coping for a minute. I'm just going to break down crying and then that'll be my refresher button and then I'm going to keep, keep trying again. <laughs> it's a bit brutal. You were very young. You said mm. you found it accidentally. How big was this lump and what were sort of the next steps? What did you do? It was really big. Really? Um, yeah, really big. And I you actually, just felt it that day for the first time out of yeah. nowhere? Was it the angle? I'm not sure, actually. T to be honest, I'm, I was surprised that I hadn't found it before, given the size of it. So it was a little eye-opener for me of like, oh, I obviously don't touch my breasts often. Um, <laughs> like, even in the shower, maybe I need to be more aware of this. So I, I was working in an acute hospital ward for general and specialist rehabilitation and surgeries. So I was heavily in the medical system when I found the lump. So I just managed to, I just talked to one of the doctors I worked with. I had a scan in a day. 
the results came back immediately and then I I got my diagnosis and so it was all an absolute it was like an avalanche the the second from I found that lump but what I initially thought was um, I've had lumps before and they always turned out to be benign cysts so I actually had zero concerns when I found this lump like oh it's another cyst I'll be fine it's always been a cyst, you know, nothing to worry about. I have very lumpy breast tissue. So it was a little bit of a shock. <laughs> it was completely the opposite. But I had an inkling as well. So that day I had three missed calls from my doctor asking to make sure I was coming in to get my test results. And that had never happened to me before. So I kind of thought, ah, oh, this probably isn't just a cyst. Right. If they want to speak to you that urgently and do it in person and not leave a voicemail. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So what, uh, what surgeries did you have in terms of lumpectomy, mastectomy? And it's, it's like you said, it sounds like it moved extremely fast in terms Mm of from finding the lump to treatment. It was so fast. And because I work Um, or I used to work in hospitals and in the clinical settings, I could see how desperately uh, rushed and how much I was prioritised. And that scared me because I had never seen the medical system pick up so quickly around a patient unless it was an absolute emergency. Watching the flurry of activity and the phone calls and all of a sudden the next morning I had the professor of breast surgery and oncology from Peter Mack calling me. I was like, oh, my God, I've got the biggest fish. <laughs> this is so serious. So the the speed was actually a huge concern to me because that was my reality of how serious it was. Right. Um, yeah. So that was really, I mean, I was also so grateful for the incredible attention I received and how much everybody stepped up. But at the same, yeah, it was very bittersweet because I was like, oh, God, I've never seen anyone get treated this quickly in my life working in hospitals for so long. Yeah. And did was it a hormone positive? Yes. So I'm ERPR positive. So initially I had the lumpectomy. They wanted to just get the, the cancerous mass removed after all of the biopsies and tests and scans to figure out that I didn't have multiple cancers in both breasts. In both breasts, it was just a lot of benign lumps that I had most likely found earlier so it ended up just being the one cancer but I had six nodes positive so straight after the lumpectomy a few weeks of recovery I then did chemo and then it was the radiotherapy and then I had the mastectomy single mastectomy and then several recon surgeries they used my lower back tissue to rebuild a breast and then there were complications so I kind of had to keep going back And then, of course, like port insertion and removal. So it was just, I I felt like a a slab of meat, (laughs) to be honest, just lying on the butcher table, like, okay, what are you going to do to me now? (laughs) What kind of support did you have? I live alone and my family are all international and interstate. So I, uh, my support network was a partner and very dear friends very dear, loved. I mean, they're they're my family, but they're just not my blood family. (laughs) It was actually quite amazing. Of course, I lost people. I think everyone does in their cancer experience. But then I've also gained so much strength in the relationships around me. And yeah, I I couldn't believe how much everyone just stepped up and and was there for me In, in the ways that I needed. You know, when I said, I can't be around people right now, they would just leave food at my door and just and walk off you know it was perfect it was with my boundaries people were very respectful <laughs> that's very nice to hear so you were already working in the hospital you were very familiar with healthcare and like you said it actually scared you how fast everything moved other than the speed did you find it helpful that you sort of knew the environment, you knew the lay of the land a little bit? It was so helpful and also very, (laughs) again, it was double-edged sword. I knew the language and I knew what scan would mean what. And and cancer was a whole new language to me. I'd never worked in oncology before. Honestly, I think any diagnosis and and any disease or condition that you, you have or get 
you you have to learn the clinical speak around that. Yes. But can, cancer was very new to me. But in the sense of what clinicians did what, how the system works, what to expect, what the scans are, I was actually very comfortable and prepared. And I was kind of a mediator between my carers of like, oh, no, no, that means this. You know, that's okay. That means this. And like, oh, that, that's not good, by the way. That means this. So it was, it was very helpful, but it also then made me extremely inquisitive and I needed to know everything. So I was, I would show up to my appointments with a list of questions. Good for and you. Even, <laughs> and I would even, I even sometimes drew graphs and like tables of what questions were more important, like a flow chart and like where my anxieties were leading to. And, and the surgeons just like, oh God, Tess, you're really overthinking this. You know, I'm like, I know I am, but I, I really need to know I'm that person that knowing is therapy. <laughs> so I, and I know that other patients kind of find it helpful to not know the details. Yeah. But yeah, I think just because I'm, I'm in the medical model and I'm clinically trained, I, was, I, just needed to, I just needed to have everything in front of me. You mentioned right at the start that initially they thought you were terminal, but now not so much. So walk us through that a little bit. So the exact words that were said to me was, you have cancer in both breasts. You're most likely going to lose both of them and potentially your life. And so I was actually expecting the words of, you have cancer and, that, and that's about it. <laughs> um, you know, we'll go from there. Let's do more tests. But the uh, severity and seriousness, I feel so sorry for the doctor who had to give me that news. I mean, saying that to anyone would be or really confronting and upsetting, but I, I did what I do best and I was in crisis mode. So I just sat there very calmly and I was like, okay, so where do we go from here? What are the next steps? What do I need to do? What are you going to do next? How do we get this ball rolling? And, and he just looked at me and went, Tess, I think you need to go home and I think you need to tell your family. And I was like, oh, but, but what do we do? You know, I'm so pragmatic. And I think that was my ADHD clicking into focus mode. But yeah, so I went home and with the printed test results um, with a partner and dear friend, we're just holding hands and crying. And I was explaining what all of the words meant on the, because it was just gibberish to people who didn't quite get the, the language. And then I kind of, as I was just sitting back on the couch, I was quite shell-shocked, of, of course. The, my partner and friend, they just started talking to each other about how they could support each other to support me. And the ways that they could get all of my friends in the in my community up and running in a way that doesn't affect me in any way except in a positive way, you know, like so who can organize meal drives, who can do deliveries, like who can take tests to appointments, you know, but they wanted to organize everything so that I could just focus on what was happening to my body. Wow. Yeah, it was really, it was quite beautiful. Were there any tools that they used? I always like to share those with people if there's anything in particular they used. I had a Facebook group for anyone that wanted to join that I used to give updates. I found it really exhausting. People would message me saying, what do you need? I'm like, how do you answer that question? I'm on chemo. <laughs> I need everything and nothing. <laughs> Come on. Or are you okay? I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so I, um, I just did all, all updates, you know, so I only had to type it once. And so yeah. everyone knew what was going on and then they could post questions and support messages for me in that group. Because what actually happened was initially in the first few weeks of my diagnosis, people were sending me oh, so many socks and blankets and tea. <laughs> I had boxes. I don't eat chocolate. I had chocolates everywhere. I was tripping over the boxes of socks. I'm not exaggerating. And I got so what socks? That's a, out. What well, I, don't, I think it's an Australian thing. Oh, you're sick. Um, I'm going to give you some really warm, comfy socks. <laughs> and I was like, like oh, my God, I, I, can't, I can't take this. And I, I broke down crying. I was so stressed. And that's when I reached out to a few friends in Adelaide. I'm like, you need to manage. Can you please manage this? I can't take this. This is too much. I mean, oh, woe is me. I have people loving and caring for me, but the overwhelm and self-responsibility I had to care for the people who were caring about me, it yeah. was extremely draining. You know, and then I would 
ask people, you know, all right, so you really want to help me. Can you help me by contacting my primary carer? And then they would get upset. I was like, okay, so who is this for? Is this for you or is this for me? If it's for me, you would contact my primary carer and ask them how they can help me through them. So it was, it was a very, it was challenging, you know. And again, that's why I lost some people. A very big lesson in people wrangling, I think. And yeah. also stress. I've never been so stressed in my life. That's the most stressful <laughs> thing I've ever experienced. People don't know what to do. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it's it's a helpless situation. It's absolutely helpless and there's a lack of control and a desperation to have something that people can do that is tangible. I also had a GoFundMe. So Amazing. my all of my friends and the communities that I work in, they all pitched in and I had my rent paid for my apartment for eight months. Um, because I couldn't work anymore, I had to leave the hospital. And my job was on my feet all day, running from patients' rooms to patients' rooms. It was absolutely impossible for me to do my job during treatments. So GoFundMe was amazing. And then also I had a, a meal train app that my friend ran where people each week would cook a few meals that are freezable and they would drop them off to her. And then every new Monday, she would drop, drop them off to me. Um, and the rule was no bolognese because everyone just cooks spaghetti bolognese when it's to be frozen in advance. Um, so I got some nice curries and, you know, it was, and again, it, it took the anxiety and stress of me having to get to a supermarket to cook. I, I mean, I was getting lost in my local apartment, like in my apartment building in my local shop because my chemo brain and cancer brain was so bad. But I was scared to go out because I thought I was going to get hit by a car because I was so inattentive. Yeah, cancer just affects everything, doesn't it? It's all all consuming. It's amazing. Yeah. So you told us why the doctor thought you were terminal. What changed their mind? What what shifted in your treatment regimen that has given it a much more positive, optimistic outlook? So all of the cancers they thought were in my left breast turned out to be benign and many, many in my right as well. So it actually ended up being just one very large cancerous mass rather than the possible eight to nine that they thought they had. And that was done through a lot of biopsies um, and a lot of MRIs and so many scans, ultrasounds, you name it. But the biopsies were the deciding factor and then the lumpectomy. And they took some surrounding tissues as well to test the margins. And it became clear that it was just the one cancer with the six positive lymph nodes. Okay. And you're still in treatment another two and a half years. Oh, yes. Tell us a little bit about that because I can see it in your face, but people <sighs> listening can't see your face, but I, I can see it. Oh, face. I'm struggling. <laughs> I am... Um, so I'll, I'll speak in regards to primarily intimacy-related side effects, but with every treatment, I was affected differently, but I've used the same principles to rehabilitate myself every time. So it's all neuroscience. So I, my, my expertise and training is in neuroscience. I've worked in neurological rehabilitation in hospitals. So I understand the body on a neurological, physiological, biological level, you know, I've got a lot of expertise and then the sexology fits into that too. But what I've noticed with all of the treatments is, you know, it, there's the things like pain and fatigue, but then there's body dysphoria, um, changes in body image, your confidence, how you feel about yourself, quality of life drops, my mental health. And right now on the endocrine treatments that I'm on, many listeners will know the word tamoxifen. I have chronic, okay, this is going to get really intimate, everybody warning. <laughs> I have chronic genital pain, which has been so bad that I haven't been able to walk for like three days at a time. I haven't been able to put underwear on because it's too painful. Um, and that's atrophy. You know, that's when the, the vulva and vaginal tissues, they get dry and they thin because of a lack of estrogen in the body. So this is, this is one of the most common side effects, but also the bone pain and the, the lack of energy. And because I live alone and I have to support myself, my entire existence is based around work to support myself to live. 
and then I just don't have the energy for anything else. So it's this like I'm I'm in this balance right now of, and I do this all the time of quality of life versus quantity. Mm-hmm. Like I'm trying to convince myself, no, Tess, you've got two and a half more years for the rest of your life. Just two and a half more years for the rest of your life. But then I hit breaking point because I'm just I'm so sick of being in pain or. I'm so sick of being so tired and not being able to see my friends or do enjoyable things that I, I hit breaking point. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna pull the plug. And then I call my oncologist and we go through the stats and then I'm motivated again. <laughs> it's just huge, it's just like back and forth, back and forth. It's it's amazing. Quality of life is very important. Mm. And sometimes I have great quality of life when I think about what I've been through and what the treatments that I'm on, but it's so much work to get there and to maintain it that sometimes I just get tired and then I slip back into some old patterns and then I have to, it's like I go backwards again and then I have to work at going forwards, you know. So I think everyone can relate to the endless self-care that we need to do and the should brain, you know. I should meditate. I should exercise every day. I should be rubbing this oil or cream all over my body. I should be taking these supplements, you know. I should also go to work and and I should make make sure I have a work life balance and see be so, you know, it's just should 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 should. I should have sex more. I should want sex more. I should like my body. You know, it's it's unrelenting. Tell us now about the work you do today. So, I've been a sexuality educator and workshop facilitator to adults in Melbourne, actually across Australia and then online globally for about a decade. And then I went to university and trained as an occupational therapist. And so addressing sexuality is a part of our job. You know, sexuality is a part of daily life. So if that matters to someone, it's our job to address it. So I was I was amazed, you know, I was at uni and I was like, oh my God, we can address sexuality? So when I was working in brain injury and spinal cord injury, you know, I would say to my clients or patients, you know, hey, if this is important to you, I I can also, we can find a private space and we can talk about sexuality as well. And that's me doing my job. Then I was diagnosed with cancer and things like, you know, chemo would change, completely changed my orgasm experience. It was like they didn't exist anymore. Or my body would do the thing that it was supposed to do, but I didn't feel the thing. It was, I called it a ghostgasm. You know, um, I was very dry. I had bleeding gums, so kissing wasn't on the mm-hmm. cards. I was told that I was a risk to my partners because I was so toxic and I was petrified of hurting the people around me. So I got really distant, you know. There's no one talked to me about safety or what to do you were a risk what what was radiation coming through your skin i mean what what what, that's what i thought (laughs) i mean that's i I, i'm just trying to wrap my brain around it a little bit so the nurse actually said you will need to be safe because you could potentially harm your partner given how toxic you will be And so I was a bit shell-shocked and, you know, when you're in the moment and you've got the whole list of all the chemo information and all the list of side effects, I didn't think to ask, can you tell me more about that? What does that mean? Do I have to avoid intimacy? Do I just need to use barriers for a few days? Like, what does this mean? What's the risk to my partner? What will happen to my partner? And then, you know, with radiation, different side effects. But so, And what happened was... I had no one to talk to. I was told to get there was one sexuality and cancer pamphlet in the hospital that I had to go and get myself. And all it said was sexuality and cancer can suffer and you really need to talk to your partner. I'm like, well, this is not helpful at all. (laughs) That's it? Like that's all you got? Oh, But it was like, you know, 20 pages of that. You know, there was no solutions. So then I studied somatic sexology while I was on treatments. Because I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. I have to be my own sex therapist. The impacts of treatments on my intimate life, I am struggling so much and I'm the one with all the training. I can't imagine how hard this would be for other people. I'm going to step up. So what I did was I I studied somatic sexology. So that's on top of my OT training and as well as my sex ed experiences. And then I created an online Facebook group 
it's called Intimacy and Cancer and it's global. It's any cancer, anyone, any country to actually be have a safe place to ask these questions. And what I saw was everyone thought that they were all alone in their struggles and everyone was too afraid to ask and no one had a clinician bring it up. And so then I thought, okay, I have all the training, I have all the experience and I've been through it. I need to I need to be the one to step up. If it didn't step up, then I would be sitting back knowing I could improve people's lives but choosing not to. So it didn't really compute in my brain. And already working in sexuality, it wasn't scary for me, you know, it was just a, it was me going to a different avenue. So I now have a private OT practice where I only work in sexuality for people living with cancer, chronic illness and disability, and I for disability work I go to people's homes. And we talk about, you know, how sexuality works in the human body, how you might want to have a partner, if there's intellectual disability, it's education around consent, you know, it's like all these things. And with my oncology stream, I see people one-on-one on on Zoom, at the Facebook group, and I've released a book and it's just um, written by you pretty much, you know, everyone in my group, all my clients and my experiences, it's all just come together to be, okay, the most practical guide I could think of rather than saying sex and cancer suffers. I'm like, yeah, we know I'm there. <laughs> it's okay. If you have this issue, this is what you can do. If you have this issue, this is what you can do. If you're losing connection, here's 12 fun activities you can do with a partner. Not sure how to bring it up. Here's 11 sentence strings. Literally say this word for word. These are the clinicians you can talk to. This is how you ask about this issue. These are the lubricants and moisturizers you want to avoid. These are the ones you need. And it's just because I just needed people to have solutions rather than feeling like they're all alone. And I, it, it just breaks my heart. Everyone, when people join the group, I just get so many messages of, oh, my God, Tess, thank you so much. I didn't realize that I wasn't alone and I was normal for struggling. I'm like, of course you're struggling. Look what cancer does to our bodies. Not struggling would be the weird thing, you know, but we're so hard on ourselves and we don't have any education around sexuality. We're supposed to be good at it. We're supposed to want it all the time, but we don't get educated on it. And, you know, you can't have too much of it. You can't have too little of it. You know, sex is just this weird thing that we can't talk about. So everyone thinks that when they're struggling with it, that it's just them and there's no one to talk to about it. So I'm trying to be a resource. You know, people are scared to talk about it. Cool. Just go on my website and read some articles, buy the book and leave it on the coffee table for your partner to read. You know, there's all these ways, like go to my YouTube channel. If reading's too hard, there's all these videos on all the sexual impacts. You know, Facebook group is amazing. Peer experiences. So many people share like, hey, this is where I buy lingerie. I played this game <laughs> with my partner and we like had a really good time. Like, hey, you know, I'm having a little bit of troubles with erection, like, but I tried this massage technique and it was amazing, you know, like really open, vulnerable sharing. It's a, it's a really powerful thing. So I have so many questions, but I can <laughs> contain myself. But my top two questions are, are men uh, part of your clientele? If so, kind of what percentage? Very curious about that. And also, do you find that uh, women going through menopause come to you as well? Yes. Yes and yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what um, I thought. <laughs> I do see men, definitely. I primarily, so I do a lot of work in prostate cancer, but also bowel and rectal cancer too. Prostate cancer is, it's, it's really tricky. I'd say it's really similar to vaginal or ovarian or uterine cancer. You know, it's it's our sexual organ. Our, our primary sexual organ is our brain, but we associate sex with our genitals. What I've has been so surprising is the lack of urologists and clinicians that talk to people with prostate cancer about the sexual side effects. But I guess it's like every other cancer. But Loss of ejaculation, if you have your prostate gland removed, will happen. And you can rehabilitate your erection if certain nerve bundles, maybe they're damaged, but they're not um, removed or damaged completely. You can rehabilitate erection, but you can also rehabilitate sensation and you can rehabilitate orgasm. 
you don't need to have a hard penis to have an orgasm. But no one talks about this. Again, it's just that thing that no one talks about. So I do a lot of work in the prostate cancer space. I'm going to shout out to a touchy subject. They are a um, global online company who specialize in sexual recovery for prostate cancer. So I've collaborated with them, but they're the, oh, they're wow. the prostate cancer gurus. And just any cancer, like any erectile changes, they're the people to go to. They're absolutely amazing. I got to share this with you. I was at a conference once with, with other cancer advocates, if you will, um, from all different sort of walks of life. And it was long day seminars. And then it's, there was a big party and everything. And I had had a few conversations with this person who was part of our group. And he made a very distinct point of telling me after he was a prostate cancer survivor. I mean, the very next words out of his mouth, but I can still have sex. I'm good. And, yeah. <laughs> and it didn't even cross my mind. It, it wow. genuinely didn't because I wasn't looking at him as a romantic partner and it just didn't even occur to me. It just, that's none of my business. And I could just see that he just, I was like, wow, this is a need to really assert his yeah. sexuality and his masculinity. And yeah. And that really shows how encompassing that is for him to be the reflexive. I need to talk about this. You know, mm -hmm. I need to defend this part of myself. Oh, that's really sad. This poor yeah. person. And I oh. don't know what to say. Good for you. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> yeah I, I really do not know what to say. I'm so going to go over to that flower pot now. <laughs> and the reason I asked you about women going through menopause is I had to have a full hysterectomy due to endometriosis. And I held off for so long because the thought of being thrown into immediate surgical menopause in doing that to my body instead of going through it naturally was, was really scary for me. And, and also I just, I've seen so many women who have gone through menopause and completely lost touch with their sexuality and they've accepted it. And that's just not a part of their lives anymore. I just, I think it's sad. It is. And um, I'm so sorry you had that experience. Uh, also, I support so many people through induced menopause from cancer mm. treatments. I was chemically induced into menopause before chemo as well. I yeah. was, yeah, and I call it, I describe it as being thrown into the menopause ocean rather than naturally strolling down the path to the beach and dipping your toe in. A, a very hot ocean, okay? It's to be like an yeah. ocean. And the ocean is on fire. fire. <laughs> that, that starts burning at 10 o'clock at night, okay? Yes. Oh, my God. And you, have, and you can't stop moving your legs. Yeah, yeah. And it stops at like 7 a.m. So. Oh, it's, um, wow, menopause is brutal. My goodness. Yeah, I, I help so many people. And there's so much to it, you know, like sleep deprivation affects everything, you know. So when we're not sleeping, our appetite, our motivation, our resilience, our um, desire and libido, like it all just goes out the window because we are, our whole body is fatigued and it's just, it's running on empty. So these things take a back seat. The, the key things around menopause are vaginal pain and also the loss of libido. And so the, both of these topics I, I could talk about endlessly. Like honestly, in, in my in my book, there's like whole chapters on libido rehab and recovery oh, and also on vaginal atrophy and how to help. I'll start with libido. It's it's a really complicated thing. So it's like an onion. Um, libido is affected by so many things. You know, it's the physical things. Maybe we have pain. Maybe we're, you know, we have fatigue. The psychological things, like maybe we're stressed, maybe we're feeling anxious, maybe we're feeling shame for the changes in our body or shame for not wanting sex, which is the thing that stops us wanting sex. Then there's also the neurological aspects of libido, which is how our brain is wired and the areas and sections in our brain, I'm going to try and not go into neurospeak here, but <laughs> the, the, the less we do something, the smaller those sections in the brain get. And when we're disconnecting from our body and when you're experiencing hot flushes and pain, why wouldn't you disconnect from your body, by the way? But when we disconnect, 
we that in turn will have us wanting less touch over time as well. So there's all of these factors that contribute to loss of libido. And so a lot of the work I do is I, I talk to people about their lives. Tell me about your routine. Tell me about when you feel awake. When do you feel tired? Tell me about your pain. When do your pain meds kick in? What helps? What doesn't help? What, what makes it worse? Tell me about how you're doing and how is your relationship with yourself or your partner? You know, are you communicating? And then it's also, all right, I need you to connect with yourself and your partner, but you're not allowed to have sex. No sex is banned. You're only allowed to touch. You're only allowed to be affectionate. You're only allowed to have intimacy. So you're going to hold hands. You're going to cuddle. You're going to kiss each other goodnight every night. And you're going to start to reconnect because people think if they need to go from not having the sex to having the sex, you know, and, and we need more time. There's so much more than that. And this is why I call myself an intimacy OT because sex is just a part of it. There's so much more that is so, so important for our well-being and our relationships. You know, I'll set people dates <laughs> like, okay, this is what you're going to do on the date. You're going to set a timer for five minutes each and you're going to touch each other. You're going to offer each other a massage on your back and your shoulders. And then you're going to choose another body part, but it's not allowed to be anything erogenous and you're going to get used to each other's bodies again. Partners are often so scared of touching their partner because they don't want to hurt them. They don't want to touch a scar, a surgery site where radiotherapy was. You know, so it's people need to reintroduce themselves to themselves, but also to each other. You know, it's, and it's you got to do it really slowly and safely. Removing sex, and by the way, that's just sex together. You can have sex with yourself anytime for like even just three weeks. Even if you're not having sex, it just, it, it's like a release in your brain. You don't have to have that fear of like, oh, God, if I kiss you, are you going to think that this is me wanting sex? If I want to hug you, does this mean that you're going to think that I want this to lead to sex? Sex hurts. I'm uncomfortable. I don't want this. And then you get anxious and then you get avoidant. It's like this huge gap. So from, from a libido perspective, you got to work on the physical things, the psychological things, but then the neurological things, removing that goal to get to the goal and reconnecting with touch, learning what your body likes. And there's also a huge part of menopause and cancer treatments too, which is people think they don't have libido, but actually it's just that their arousal responses have changed. So yes. I'm going to use, yeah, I'm going to use I statements here. So I feel like I have no libido, but what's, what's actually happened is that I take longer to get into it. So I'm so I call this reactive versus proactive desire and arousal. So proactive means I'm sitting on the couch thinking about um becoming a mechanic and all of a sudden, oh, I'd I'd like some sex right now. I'm walking down the street and it's a nice day and I'm like, oh, oh, my pencil wet. What do you know? Um so that's proactive, you know, like it doesn't need a stimulus, it's just spontaneous and you know, that that's that, that's great. What happens with cancer treatments and menopause is that your desire becomes reactive. So it needs to react to a stimulus. So rather than wanting it spontaneously all the time, we actually just want it once we're feeling safe, connected and comfortable. So that's why things like touch is so important. If you want to get intimate with a partner or yourself, you need warm up, you know, you need to touch your body, maybe have like, just kiss for the sake of kissing, feel safe and connected. And that's when your brain relaxes and your brain is your largest sex organ. And then that's when your brain can connect to your arousal. When you're relaxed, your muscles relax, you get blood flow to the internal tissues that triggers an arousal response. Our internal genitals, if you have a vulva, a vagina, or the external, if you have a penis. And then that's when your desire kicks in. So People think that they don't want sex ever, but in actual fact, they actually just need a bit of time to want it. Yeah. And we are not taught how to communicate about sex. <laughs> like We're not. Not at all. God, no. The world would be a better place if, if we could. We talk to strangers in a, in a clinical environment, the most intimate things about our body. But for some reason, when it's about pleasure, we freak out and we can't do it. It's, it's so funny. Uh, yeah, and one more thing on that is... I guess people also, I help a lot of people understand how you can connect without the focus on sex, you know. And so I have 
like in the book 12 activities that are like touch and they're fun and they're like games as a way for people to reconnect you know it's got a structure and it's not about sex so it really gives people the freedom to relax and enjoy and also sentence strings of like how you can say you know i might need a bit more time can we kiss a bit more how are you doing in your body is there anything that you don't want what would you like you know sentence strings because people just don't know how to say this kind of stuff yeah. uh, and and it's so tricky and and of course you know people also might need a little extra help and i call them intimacy aids i don't call them toys but things like vibration is a way to stimulate the deeper tissues because maybe they're a little bit desensitized after chemo or radio and there's nothing wrong it's it's you're doing it right you know you're exploring your body and and maybe you do need a little extra help but vibration like doesn't even have to be internally the amazing clitoris is there for all of us <laughs> with one you know it's a it's a very handy tool especially <laughs> if you have genital pain if you have vaginal mm -hmm. pain yeah don't don't have penetrative sex it's just going to make it worse you know you the amazing clitoris your your brain you know kissing desire like let your body enjoy and oh you're going to be so surprised I think um, I'm going to try really hard not to rant too much about this, but I um, get yeah, one I, rant and then I get okay, to ask you a okay. question. This, this is my rant. <laughs> <laughs> one, oh my goodness. <laughs> so many people tell me that their gynecologist told them in regards to their vaginal pain, use it or lose it, which is awful. So what, what their clinician is saying is, I want you to cause yourself more pain to fix the pain. Like, hmm, I've got a broken leg. Walk on it. Walk it off, mate, you know. And, and what that is, it's, it's firstly, it's telling people that there's only one use for your genitals and that you, it's almost like forcing people to have a painful experience that they don't want to have. I teach consent, you know, so this, this to me is a huge no-no because people are going to should themselves and they do should themselves into really painful sex experiences. Mm. It's bad for them. It's bad for their libido. It's bad for their desire. And it's bad for their partner. All right, Tess, circling back to you. You knew healthcare. You were an occupational therapist. You knew the lay of the land. But what is one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning of your cancer journey? I think I was warned about this, by the way. I think I just didn't hear my oncologist. But I would have liked to have known that it's a six-year process and none of it is going to be easy. None of it. I don't think I was prepared for how difficult induced menopause and endocrine treatments would be. And it's. I think that's why I'm struggling so much. I actually thought it would be bit easier than this so I um yeah I I really would have appreciated you know hey this is going to be six years of the toughest six years of your life the whole time I think would have been really helpful for me to know I've heard that before from one other breast cancer survivor she said they didn't tell me it was going to be a slog and I'm still in it and it's yeah. still a slog and they some didn't people, tell me some people have to do it for 10 years yeah um so Oh, I feel I feel blessed that I'm only five, but um, it doesn't change the personal experience of struggling so much. Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah. Not, not at all. I, I, I think what you stated is a reality for many people, many people. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in Australia, what would it be and why? I'm so fortunate to have been diagnosed in Australia. We have an incredible, incredible medical system everything's free um, and you get everything you need. But I think, and of course I'm going to say this, <laughs> I think, um, yes, I understand how busy the cancer, like cancer hospitals are. I, I, it blew my mind how many people there are in waiting rooms that have cancer, how busy the staff are, how hard everyone works. But I would really appreciate if clinicians would at least say to people, hey, there's other aspects of your life. Like we, we treat you acutely, but there's other parts of your life that you can get support in too, such as mental health and sexuality. I would like for people to openly, even, even just to say that, you know, 
hey, if you're after sexual support, go to this person called Testavez, the website's Connectable Therapies. That's them doing their job and then I get to be the expert to support them. But so many people don't don't know that there's help out there. Um, this part of life is is just, it's ignored. There's so much shame around it. So I think I would really appreciate for the Australian medical system to acknowledge intimacy as a as a contributor to quality of life. Oh, worldwide, man, worldwide. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think we're much more prudish in the US, so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but to, to second your, your point, I remember one time a patient telling me he was really struggling and he was an older man and he did not want to admit it to his wife or, or anyone. And finally, a year into treatment, he said something to his oncologist. Down the hall, the whole time, were mental health services that were free for him and tailored for cancer patients. And not one time did his oncologist think to bring it up until he asked. And I really, truly think it's because of his generation and because he was a man. So it was like, ah, oh, he's not going to need that. And he, and then he said he got mad. He was so mad. It was like, oh, I could have been getting the support the whole time down the hall. Yeah. It's right there. Why would you not say something? You know, why would why would you not mention that? A free service as well. Yeah. For cancer. Wow, that's heartbreaking. Are you ready for Thriver Rapid Fire? Sure. Hey. Beach, desert, or mountains? Mountains. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Rolling Stones. I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> what is one word that best describes you? Clumsy. Really? See, yeah. I, I was thinking force of nature, but you can. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very good at complimenting myself. So <laughs> Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Oh, no. Music is my life. That's impossible. I'm sorry. I can't answer. There's, there's <laughs> just too many. <laughs> the last meal you want to eat. Oh, I think it would be a lab grown T-bone steak. So I don't have the guilt of killing an animal. But I still get the steak. <laughs> it would taste just as good though. <laughs> yes, it tastes just as good. <laughs> uh, the last person or people you want to see? Um, my, my beautiful friends and partner that supported me through cancer. And the last words you will speak. Don't think, just do it. Ooh, I like that. Mm. I like that. Okay. Aside from Cancer You, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And please, please tell people how they can get in touch with you. I don't want to sound egotistical or salesy, but I'm kind of one of the only sexuality and cancer resources there are. So I'm going to say myself. That's okay. Um, I want yeah. you to. I, um, it's very un-Australian to promote ourselves and we get really <laughs> awkward with stuff like this. But uh, I, I have so many free resources in so many mediums because you know, sometimes we can't read, we need videos, you know. So I have a YouTube channel called Intimacy and Cancer, which is just, I think it's over 50 videos now of just all these different topics, things that you might be concerned about or wanting more information about. They're only like two to three minutes long. It's my, um, my silly face talking exactly how I'm talking right now. It's very casual. I also have the Facebook group where anyone is welcome called Intimacy and Cancer. Uh, and that's an amazing space. I think it's about four or 5,000 people now um, wow. all over the world, 43 countries. I'm so proud of that. You should uh, be proud. Yeah, thank you. It's, um, yeah, God, it's such a beautiful space. My book, A Better Normal, Your Guide to Rediscovering Intimacy After Cancer, um, is I'm getting feedback. It's changing lives. It's It answers all the questions you you might have. I go into so much detail and it's so practical and people are saying like, oh my God, I can't believe how normal and casual I felt reading this. And it's such a sensitive topic. You know, I've, 
I'm very, I normalize it. You know, it's, it's just another part of our lives, but a part we're struggling with. So I cover all the things like genital dysfunction, vaginal atrophy, erectile changes, libido, desire, fatigue, pain, how to reconnect with a partner, how to set dates, games you could play, sentence strings, intimate positions around body shame. If you've got stomas and catheters, like everything you can imagine. I also see people one-on-one via Zoom. So my website is called Connectable Therapies and my Facebook business page is the exact same name, Connectable Therapies. So there's a lot of options there um, for people. Uh, And my website as well, I have articles um, on topics like libido and changes in orgasm and, you know, how having losing your breasts can feel like losing a part of your sexuality. Those articles are very small versions of all the information that's in my book. But, you know, if you want to get a, a, an idea of what I'm about and, and my approaches to intimacy, um, that's a really good place to start. We're going to put links to everything in the workshop and the show notes. Tess, thank you so much for coming on and not only sharing your story, but talking about these really delicate issues and being so vulnerable about them. Mm. Thank you so much for having me. And um, I guess just to anyone listening, if if you're struggling, you're, you're not alone and you're normal for struggling. It's just really important that you know that. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.